Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. And I'm Ginny. I'm Natalie. And I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. Today we will be discussing the bad boys of the Baroque. Ooh. Bad boys! What you want? What you want to do? <laughs> so good. But first, we would like to say thank you for the kind of surprising and overwhelming amount of support. So much love. We have received so far. So thanks, friends and family, thanks, for, for you know, the overwhelming support. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before we get into the drama, that <laughs> you might be wondering what Baroque even means. And you would not be alone in that. It's a pretty common question even among academics. It's a weird word. It's a weird word, it's and a, it, yeah. it means a whole lot of things, but yeah, I'm going to yeah. do my best to summarize it for you so you kind of get an idea of where we are in history and what we're talking about. So, as a stylistic, it's a stylistic term, typically considered the prevailing style of the 17th century. Roughly 1600 to 1750 is kind of the time frame. Most often associated with Europe, as many artistic styles are, but it is not, it does not solely belong to Europe. It belongs no. to lots of other places It does. As well. It was one of the first truly global art periods. I mean, obviously the Renaissance had quite a bit of influence, but Baroque partially because, sorry, <laughs> because of um, colonial powers that be spread into areas of Latin America and Asia and a lot of American colonies. So it's... It's a pretty all-encompassing period that spread pretty far. Right. And it's also not just relegated to the land of painting and sculpture. Baroque was also a largely popular musical sort of yes. movement. Mm. Very yeah. important. Good yeah. point. Music, architecture, it's all. Often, I feel like it's more often associated with music it, than it, art. <clears throat> I think sorry, that's what is. more people recognize yes, about Baroque. Yeah. It is. You realize is. that quickly when you start going through libraries and searching for Baroque. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's so, so much music that I don't know. Yeah, about. Um, pro tip, don't just search Baroque <laughs> if you're writing a Baroque paper. The term itself uh, comes from the Portuguese word Baroco, which means misshapen pearl. If you want to look at it according to like linear timeline, you can kind of think of it as like Renaissance and then the Mannerist style kind of came into play and then the Baroque was kind of a response to that. So once again, it's one of those things that's kind of contested and how it's you want convoluted. to look at it. convoluted. As most stylistic terms are, yes. which is something we will discuss a lot. Whole other podcast <laughs> topic. So characteristics of the Baroque. Uh, what might a Baroque painting look like? 
We see with the Baroque, we see the introduction of genre paintings, which genre paintings mm. are uh, scenes from everyday life. This was not a super common thing up until this point. Things like still life and self-portrait kind of came out at this time. Vanitas. Yes, the Vanitas theme, which kind of has to do with the uh, vanity and really just the idea that everything dies. <laughs> Memento <laughs> to, mori. To, to be kind of dramatic so for a second. <laughs> you can't escape it. Um, yeah, those still life paintings that you look at and you just think they're just like fruit and flowers. There's a lot oh. more going on there, guys. Baroque is drama. Drama. So totally. Drama. So um, we love the it. most drama since the Hellenistic period, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> True. Yeah. A little art history joke for you guys. Nah. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Um, yeah, so it's very, oftentimes Baroque art is very emotionally intense, very emotionally charged. Another very common characteristic is ma um, like mastery of light and shadow and use of what is considered tenebrism, which is kind of just contrast taken to a whole new level. Sharp like contrast. Very extreme. When you're playing with contrast on like your Instagram, it's that like all the way up. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> That's great. They should come out with a Baroque filter. They that should. Very clever. That would Carbaggio be great. filter. There's an idea. <laughs> Run with it. <laughs> um, oftentimes there's overlapping figures. Um, figure, figures? Um, figures. <laughs> um, planes are not as clearly defined as in Renaissance painting, so you kind of have overlapping going on. In terms of what's going on in history, Baroque is associated with the Counter-Reformation, and therefore themes considering or concerning martyrdom, and just like intense spiritual experience are very prevalent because obviously counter-reformation, you're trying to bring people back to the church. Trying and to stomp down those Protestants, trying to keep it going. Just making the Catholic Church sexy again, basically. Yeah, basically the Catholic Church was like, hey, iconoclasm, we're not doing that. We're these are devotional paintings, yeah. but mm -hmm. they're also sexy. Yeah. They're they're for the illiterate. Mm -hmm. you, gotta, yeah. you gotta help out the illiterate and keep them in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. And sex sells. So there you go. <laughs> and, and that, Seduction. Yeah. And that also relates to the emotionally charged aspect yeah. of it because Baroque artwork wants to create this sense of this intense emotional spiritual experience. You want to look at it in no God in some way. Like that's kind of the idea behind a lot of it, not... All of it, but that... Um, that's lovely. That's how it relates to the Counter-Reformation, mm -hmm. I guess. So we kind of talked about it a little bit already, but Baroque is kind of a controversial term. As I said, we're in the midst of the Counter-Reformation, so there's you have a lot of issues concerning iconoclasm and what images can and can't be depicted. Iconoclasm is basically like the institutional destruction... Sorry. It's the destruction of images for fear of people um, worshiping the images rather than what they represent. So when you have religious imagery, such as icons, you you see this fear of people worshiping the icon more than the actual religious person it's supposed to represent. Hopefully that made sense. Right. Which, to be fair, the Protestants were kind of on to something. Mm -hmm. You know, for several hundreds of years, it seems the Catholic Church was... All about the relic and the, you know, this is the Especially finger when they needed of the money. Saint 
so and so and anyway so yeah it was, it, it makes sense it was just there was a reformation and then. and then a counter reformation yeah, exactly because yeah. who's gonna put the catholic church down oh, so, God. <laughs> the catholic church in the corner so the catholic church is trying to reassert control in europe the term itself is controversial it was first used in 1757 so this is a few years after most work was made in the Baroque style time period, it can easily be associated with negative connotations. As was discussed, it means misshapen pearl, which kind of suggests a, um, like something's wrong with it, I guess is the best way. I don't know if you guys. One thing that I really connected with the Baroque after class as an undergrad was this kind of helix shape that keeps showing up. So um, you can identify it with movement. Jenny's going to talk about Bernini later, but he employs it a lot in his sculpture. So this kind of twisting, think like DNA shaped. So um, there's often a, bu- a bizarreness associated with the Baroque, which can either be the basis of its appeal or kind of a reason to hate on it. Like there's people that belong to both camps. Many of the works of this period rejected more traditional ideas of decorum. For example, Caravaggio would paint uh, the bottom of people's feet, which at this time was just like a crazy thing to do. Decorum in the context of at least the 17th century basically just means something that was considered proper, wouldn't make any waves, was considered to be acceptable and respectful and traditional. And so when you did not have decorum and you did things like show the bottoms of people's dirty feet... In religious paintings. That was, like, not okay for quite a while. And then that kind of, the script gets a little bit flipped with that uh, during the Baroque period. Baroque is complicated, like we said. And it's probably deserving of its own episode. We could talk about this Mm -hmm. for a really long time. If it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Hey. Nice show title. That will, yeah, that will be the name of our Baroque episode. I stole that. (laughs) (laughs) Props to Adam. I stole that from you. Very Um, clever, Adam. It is very clever. Thank you, Adam. Um, But yeah, so today we will be discussing three key players of the Baroque that also happen to have complicated and dramatic histories. We will start with uh, Michelangelo Marisi, better known as Caravaggio. We'll have a few interesting anecdotes about Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about Diego Velasquez. Mm. So Mm -mm. it should be be pretty (laughs) solid. Um, So yeah, I will pass it along to you, Natalie. All right. Tell us about Caravaggio. Oh my God, I can't wait. So, uh... Michelangelo Marisi Caravaggio. I don't know if most people know this, but his name was not Caravaggio. That is the region in Lombardy that he was from. Very common in Italian families. You go yeah. by you go by your region. So because he's the most famous person to come out of Caravaggio, <laughs> that is how he's known. And uh, you bet that he definitely took uh, sharing the name with a famous renaissance painter to be a sign that this is what he should be doing it was meant to be it was fate uh caravaggio believed in fate so he was born in somewhere between 1571 and 73 there's you know it's contested he lived in lombardy for a while he was orphaned at a pretty young age he 
began his painting studying in a way he apprenticed under a guy named uh, Pitterzano. He eventually made his way to Rome, which is where his career really started. That's where things get exciting. Always. Always. All begins in Rome. Seriously. <laughs> where all great stories begin. Um, <laughs> so, like I said, he was orphaned at a pretty young age. Um, a fun fact is that he was kind of obsessed with being a knight, and he <laughs> supposedly spent all of his inheritance on a sword. <laughs> Which, in the 17th century, you could not carry without <laughs> proper licensing, which she did not have. What um, a can yeah. you carry a sword now without proper licensing? Is we, that legit? You know, I don't know. That could very well be. That's a good I question. I feel like if you were walking down the street today with a real No, you for sword. sure can't. Just think about it. Like, knives, aren't there? Like, pocket knives and stuff. There's, like, sure really go. strict There's laws. There's definitely some illegal knives that, um... That you can get. <laughs> we know that you know. This is if you ever want to take a trip to Chinatown, I know where to get these um, contraband items. But anyway, that's besides the point. Swords are bad. Anyway. If you're if you're looking for a sword, talk to Jen. Yeah. For all but, your <laughs> after. After this whole Caravaggio story, I don't know if you guys are going to really want one, so <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. It didn't go well for <laughs> no, Mr. Caravaggio. It did not. So, um, artistically, he worked from life a lot. He um, liked to have live models. He did not sketch before he drew, and there are many a theory out there of how exactly he staged his photographs because they are so um illusionistic is the proper term i think pe people use naturalistic or realistic a lot which are fine but illusionistic really kind of embodies it because it's this idea that he's presenting it as something that's out of reality but it's obviously not it's a painting it's too it's two-dimensional we know that he knows that but it's it's an illusion that we are okay with and that we enjoy so it is. It's very reminiscent of real life, and people just really want to know how exactly he did it because in the 17th century, that was new. Yeah. Um, it was new to see something that was so real-looking. That's caused controversy. Some people loved it. Some people did not like it at all. Yeah, it was kind um, of frowned down upon. Yeah, it was It was contested, you know, and it... it it's one of those things where, you know, people had strong opinions one way or the other. Um, I don't yeah. think anyone was lukewarm Definitely. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone was lukewarm about yeah. Caravaggio. No. no. He was, he was not a lukewarm Take guy. him or leave him. <laughs> so his work really was based on this tenebrism that Corey talked about earlier. Very extreme lights and extreme shadows, one right next to one another. We'll post some of these pictures on the website so you guys can see them it's quite striking it's great um yeah it's i'm a big fan so not to be biased but i think it's gorgeous not to be biased but I'm but biased. i'm very biased <laughs> because i love him so that being said he was 
kind of a little punk, and he has a few stories, one of which involves a waiter where he had ordered artichokes, and <laughs> when they came, when the waiter came out with the artichokes, he had asked for some cooked in butter, some cooked in oil, and when he asked which was which, the waiter told him to smell them and figure it out himself, and he threw <laughs> the hot plate of artichokes in the waiter's face. Hot butter oil. <laughs> so he had a he had a hot temper. He didn't want to mess with a him. Hot buttery temper. <laughs> and he illegally carried a sword. So so he didn't care. <laughs> yeah, there were accounts of him attacking people, and he often did this from behind. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> not the not the noblest of what fights. a the dick stabbing <laughs> in the back. Truly. Yeah, so he had some issues with that. He um he started a negative poem about the painter Baglione. Back before Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Poetry disc. <laughs> and that actually went all the way to court. I mean <laughs> different times, guys, different times. Carvaggio and invented um bullying trash talk yeah trolls po- poetry <laughs> trash talk. it's like the original like diss track you know exactly exactly man caravaggio he was a backstabber he was a troll and he was bad to the service industry and a little artichoke thrower he was kind of a dick yeah it's like he was a dick but you know. he made some great art but he made some beautiful <laughs> paintings guys you need to be looking at these paintings as you listen to this because if not you're gonna hate him right now it might be redeeming it might not it's true i won't it's sway all your you. opinion so we had the artichoke incident this backstabbing the poem it kind of culminated well okay before i get to that just uh this idea of him and his street fighting. Um, he also <laughs> was just very... He was a street fighting man. <laughs> he was. 17th century street fighting. And he also just was very in with the street crowd. He used a lot of what we what would be called low life of Rome to be models for his painting, which is something that had not been done before. And I mean... Rome's a big city, but some of these people would be recognizable, and this could this got him in trouble a few times with his religious paintings and altarpieces because, you know, his genre paintings like the card sharks and his um, gypsy fortune teller paintings, you know, those are genre paintings that depict day to day life. But then when his, you know, less than less than respectable models make his way make their way into his religious paintings, it becomes an issue. So um, that's where he runs into a lot of criticism, not just with showing bare feet and bottoms, but also just not uh, respectable figures. But it all kind of culminates in him getting into a street fight, sword fight, whatever you want to call it. A duel. <laughs> a duel. <laughs> I don't know if you could even call it that. Probably I think not. It's, it's it was lower. not gentlemanly at all. <laughs> On a tennis court in 1606, uh, Renuzio Tomassoni was his opponent. It was over a lady. Carvaggio ends up killing the guy and... You know, that's his frowned upon. His legal sword. <laughs> his legal sword. So there's now, he's a dead man walking. Essentially, in the 17th century, he was given a sentence that if someone were to see him, they could behead him and bring his head in and it would be fined. Do we know anything about Tomasoni? 
between them? He was wealthy enough that it was a problem that Caravaggio <laughs> killed him. Fair. It was not he someone was that Caravaggio should have killed. Just anybody could hang out on a tennis court <laughs> in a 17th century. Well, uh, was, that was where the fight was arranged. Oh, <laughs> Let's meet at the right. Court. <laughs> I'll meet you at the tennis court after Pretty dark. Much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't already um, kind of figured out by your discussion so far, we're talking about a point in history where class is a very big issue. Not that oh, yeah. it's not now, but it's like a very, very big they issue. Didn't, they didn't pretend that class wasn't real back then. Yeah. Like yeah. we do now. <laughs> like, class? What is yeah. that? What's class? We're all equal. <laughs> Yeah, that was no. not a thing. It was a very clear um, disparity among classes. There were there were the rich and the wealthy and the well-to-do, and there was everybody else. <laughs> and if you wanted to paint everyone else or be involved with everyone else, the uh, elite didn't want anything to do with you. He had a, a relatively decent modicum of success. He... he <laughs> Was actually pretty well. <laughs> the wine opener, the wine opener. <laughs> I wonder if the mic picked that up. Natalie has this really amazing, fancy. It's a Bridgestone. Oh, well, there's our product placement of the night, my friends. This particular, this particular bottle is Da Vinci Chianti. Oh, Chianti. highly recommend it. Highly. And there's a beautiful it, and there's uh, a illustration. Really lovely um, drawing by Da Vinci on on the label and obviously he's not part of this time <laughs> but he's still italian and he's an artist so he's an important precursor but back to caravaggio <laughs> yeah so so he kills a guy and you know perfect timing he heads out he goes to Naples for a while, um, completes some commissions there, and he basically waits it out for Scipione Borghese, who's a very important character in the 17th century. He's a cardinal, and he is holding Caravaggio's fate because he has the power to pardon him and get him back to Rome safely. At one point, he heads to Malta, and he's working on commissions there, and he actually gets knighted in Malta. He becomes one of the Knights of Malta. I mean, this is a big deal Huge. for Caravaggio. I mean, mm. you guys know he spent his inheritance on a sword. He really wants this. <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up screwing it all up. Um, yeah, he gets into a fight in Malta. He gets Jesus. arrested again. He's wanted. It's just like... Layer upon layer of misfortune, and within it's not all misfortune. It's, it's not misfortune. It's but misbehavior. It's what he considers it misfortune, which is a big part of the story. Yes. He thinks that this is kind of like the world caving in on him. He does not reflect on himself, and paint at this time had lead in it, and. Oh. People have people have drawn connections to the lead in the painting and him being very successful at a certain point in painting a lot, and then that in turn oh, no. causing it's, his yeah. insanity. Just, just eating lead paint. That's the, that's the old uh, Van Gogh theory yeah. as well, yeah. or Van Gogh. Yeah, and you know he he is on the run for murder, and a lot of his paintings throughout this period had to do with biblical beheadings. I mean, Judith beheading Holofernes, John the Baptist, uh, David and Goliath, you name it. I mean, he deals with a lot of beheading themes. He starts to head back to Rome, and he 
gets on a boat. This is, uh, there's so much going on. Sorry, guys. He has a really long story. But there's he had so gotten, much to say about so much to him. Say. He had been attacked in Malta, and this attack was pretty severe, and it caused an infection that's also been traced to why he was acting so crazy, although he had already been acting crazy at that point. Whoa. But the infection could have really, you know, no antibiotics. No. Damn. Who knows? So um, this could have been super debilitating, but he's trying to get back to Rome. He's heading north, and... He gets off at a certain location and he gets arrested again because he <laughs> it. is wanted. He just couldn't catch a break. He couldn't <laughs> catch a break. And in the time period where they figure out that they're no longer looking for him, he wasn't supposed to get arrested. He was supposed to be in the clear at this point. But that wasn't known by the people who got him. And by the time they let him go, the boat was gone with his paintings on board. Those paintings were the only ticket that he had to pardon uh, oh, to no. be pardoned, yeah. So as the legend goes, he chased down the boat on the beach <gasps> and then collapsed out of exhaustion. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that. that's true. I think that is definitely Oh folklore. my gosh, I can see it in my mind. Yeah, oh, because there's so many a cheesy video reenacting it, you guys. Oh man. Get, get on YouTube and look, look up Caravaggio no, we'll put. We're going to put some links on the website definitely. to some... Really great reenactments oh, yeah. for you guys. Oh, oh, just, you guys this is a want to see ground. the artichoke scene. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see it. It's, oh, it's he's, so bad. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> so what, whatever the reason, he ends up dying shortly thereafter. So 1610, <laughs> Caravaggio dies. The sad part of the story is that he was granted pardon Right around the time that he died. So it's just, you know, a tragic character. But Well that's that's my boy. Caravaggio, thank you for your for your works. Thank you, Caravage. RIP. Peace be with you. (laughs) As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But Despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. Okay. We're going to, or rather, I'm going to be talking about John Lorenzo Bernini. And Bernini is really kind of a giant of the Baroque, but he's not necessarily an artist that you hear about as much as, say, um, other Italian artists like your Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael. And part of that could be because Bernini really stayed within the realm of sculpture and then later architecture. And Bernini was lucky in the way that he was born into a family. His um, father, Pietro Bernini, was a Mannerist sculptor. And he was born in Naples. His um, mother was from Naples and his father was from Tuscany. But his family moved to Rome when he was very young. And so he had this kind of privileged upbringing, even though he was one of 13 children, you know, just that kind of Catholic family dynamic. Oh boy. Um, (laughs) So he was exposed to art from 
a very early age and then moving to Rome when he was still young and impressionable, he really was benefited by having a pretty enriched um, artistic education. And by the time he was eight, he was already making his own marble sculptures and he was deemed the next Michelangelo by the time he was eight years old, which is crazy. But he was just that gifted and he was obviously after Caravaggio, so he was born in 1598, but he was very much affected by what Caravaggio did, so that's why he's really a good artist to discuss kind of after Natalie's discussion of Caravaggio. And so this idea of like shock theater that Caravaggio really kind of brought to like the precipice of Baroque Roman art is the tradition that Bernini started working off of. And... The thing about Bernini is that while he was trained in drawing and painting, he really thrived with sculpture. So a lot of what he did was take this kind of shock theater and um, relationship between kind of this torment and ecstasy and movement and drama. He depicted it through marble rather than oil on canvas. So a lot of what his early work did was to kind of show the momentary, the dramatic, the emotional through marble as his medium. And like I said, luckily for him, he came from a background that was well connected. He didn't have to hustle like Caravaggio did. Um, you know, he didn't come from an incredibly noble background per se, but he came from a background that was well-versed in the arts and he was never really at a loss of connections and it helped that he was incredibly charming, he was incredibly witty, and he was talented and he was good looking. Okay. Um <laughs> he was. And I just He's wanna, actually really cute. He is. Ginny has a little bit of a I, I do, you but I, I want to say, though, that the story that I'm going to get into is going to be violent and disturbing, and it's just a, a trigger warning for people that may have um, kind of uh, a sensitivity to, there's nothing that's going to get into rape or um, anything like that, but there's definitely going to be some physical violence, and I just want to say that I do not like Bernini for those. I don't condone any of those <laughs> actions, none of his actions that I'm going to talk about other than art-related, are what really makes me love Bernini. This is the shame on Bernini. Yeah, period. yeah, shame yeah. Shame on you, Bernini. Exactly. But despite all that, like I said, he was incredibly talented, and he had all this charm going for him, and by the time he was in his early 20s in Rome, he was thriving. Um, he was doing incredibly well, and he was made a knight, and he didn't marry for quite a while, so by the time he was in his um, mid to late 30s, before he was 40, he was single, and that was kind of part of him, like, dedicating himself to his art. But... That didn't mean he wasn't having sex, because he was. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Bernini, by the time he was in his late 30s, had a very successful workshop where he had other artists working under him, helping him on commissions. One of those artists was Matteo Bonarelli, and he uh, had a wife named Costanza. And wouldn't you know it, Bernini and Costanza 
really connected in a whole lot of ways. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they had um, quite the affair for a number of years. And we'll post this image on our website, but he did a portrait bust of Costanza in um, about 1635, and this was like at the height of their affair. And at this time, Bernini was about 39 years old. And it's a really interesting bust for a few reasons. Marble portrait busts, for the most part, during the 17th, special, 17th century, especially in Rome, were of typically men, and they were men of status, and they were men of power. So they were cardinals, popes, kings. But Bernini made a portrait bust of his mistress, Costanza. And it's really beautiful and it's very sensual and it makes no bones about that. She is depicted, and he does this a lot with his portrait bust, where the lips are slightly parted to kind of capture that moment of speaking. And so... Parted lips are also just incredibly sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like like, a little, that that's was like a, not yeah. unintentional. <laughs> that's the best way to make like your selfie sexy. It's just part yeah, those lips exactly. a little bit. Because it's just like, what am I thinking? What am I going to say? You know, it's the mystery of it. It's like, hey, what that mouth do? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so this is what he does with Costanza. And, and she was actually a very smart woman. She was from a well-to-do family, a noble family in Rome. She was well-educated, and she was known for being a very intelligent and fiery personality in that she spoke her mind, and this was known amongst um, a lot of the noble upper class of Rome. And so part of her depiction with this kind of look in her eye and the parted mouth was also, you know, of course it was sensual, but it was also commenting on her intellect. And, you know, she's wearing a blouse and just the button on the top is unbuttoned and it's kind of this like momentary depiction of, you know, his lover and and her blouse is just unbuttoned at the top, this kind of inviting, just little glimpse of these like marble breasts that are just oh looming. God. So it, it's it, it's beautiful. Very it's beautiful. Bust. And um, so you'll have to look at it. And like I said, we'll we'll put it up so you I'm can see. I'm blushing it. just listening to you it's, talk yeah, about this. Corey is it's incredible. literally blushing. <laughs> it's incredible. And like I said, this was not common for the time. Busts were generally pretty formal, and they were n not sexy like that was not really a thing so this was again kind of Bernini working within the tradition and really being successful because of his charm and his skill but still kind of putting his own little sexy spin on things which he was able to get away with for the most part so things are going pretty well he's very successful he's single he's got this you know bodacious intelligent mistress but then things start <laughs> to really <laughs> come apart at the seams. Oh, man. <laughs> this is where it gets good. So in the Roman court life, kind of imagine these courts of the 17th century as like very upper class, maybe private high schools. It's so <laughs> like gossipy and mean people girls. are talking about like so Ten and things so. things I hate about you. Yeah. <laughs> like so and so and so and so are together but like she's with also with him and so it's kind of that climate. So Bernini hears that his girl Costanza is also sleeping with his younger brother Luigi. Oh what? Bernini. 
shoot. And as I said, you know, Bernini is one child of 13. So <laughs> this is just one of his many siblings. But also, you know, obviously Bernini's like, uh, this is an issue. Excuse but he, me? But he wasn't sure if it was actually legitimate. And his brother was also very talented. He was a sculptor and architect, and he was also a... Into math, <laughs> but um, yeah, he was a numbers man. But he, he, you know, he paled in comparison to Bernini's artistic skill at the time. So Bernini says, "Okay, I'm gonna kind of set up this scenario where I can find out whether or not this this is true." Instead of just saying, "Costanza, are you two timing me on top of like two timing your husband because you're a boss?" Are you three timing uh, me? Are oh. you three timing me? Instead of saying that. He sets up this kind of uh, trick where he says, hey, babe, I'm going out to the country. I'm going to be out of town. But he's not. (laughs) So he goes to the Bonarelli house and he's there in the early morning hours and he's waiting out in the dawn in the mist on a hill looking down on Costanza's house. Oh, man. And what does he see but Costanza and Luigi leaving the house Costanza gives him a passionate embrace and then his brother leaves and I can only imagine really what went on in Bernini's mind when he saw this but clearly flames just engulfed his mind and just turned him into a rage machine where he chased his brother from Costanza's house through Rome into the very hallowed halls of St. Peter's Basilica, (laughs) where Bernini himself was commissioned to do the Baldacchino. Bernini knew it well. Bernini was also a very religious man. But nonetheless, he chased his brother into the nave of the church, where he proceeded to beat him with an iron bar. Can we, like, take a second (laughs) to really think about how... Dramatic this is. Like oh. if you have in ever been Catholic to, Church. If you've Not ever just Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. The Catholic Church. Peter's Basilica. As not no, not that no. I know. It was very early. Reenactments take advantage. If really. you have had the experience of being in St. Peter's Basilica, it is a very <laughs> imposing. Yeah, yes. there's a lot go. It's a large space, a lot of really beautiful art. Um, you also have, you know, God looking down upon yeah. you, whether whether you believe in that or not. But like all those people did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, even if you don't, like that that is there in some way. Like this is a very dramatic scene that is playing out. Incredibly dramatic. And really the only reason that Bernini didn't kill his brother Luigi was because his mom knew what was going on and his mom had actually been concerned about Bernini for some time and was writing to the then Pope just saying he's out of control and she alerted the papal guards, which were, by, um, you know, stood guard around St. Peter's and Vatican City. And so they were able to separate the two brothers, but he, he did um, manage to break two ribs of Luigi. But that wasn't it. Bernini wasn't satisfied with only trying to murder and then breaking two ribs of his brother. He had a manservant go to Costanza's house 
and slash her face with a knife so that her beauty would be forever changed and her face, the scars, a mark of her shame and infidelity, even though Bernini was not her husband, he, um, you know, was her lover. So obviously we can guess that being a woman in the 17th century in Rome wasn't great. But because it, she wasn't able to charge him with anything, right? Like no. This, this went undisciplined. No. Undisciplined. And the fact that it, it gets even more fucked up in terms of justice. So Bernini was charged 3,000 scudi as a fine, which was later waived by his friend the Pope. And Bernini was almost always very good friends with the Popes. So his brother was sent into exile to Bologna, and Costanza, with her cut-up face, was sentenced to jail. So the only person that was actually sentenced to criminal offenses put into jail was Costanza. Just take a second. Let that set in. To ruminate on on the white male privilege. Yes. There. Yes. There's, um. Yes. (laughs) I'm mad. Yeah. (laughs) And can you imagine going home to your husband Mm -hmm. with a slashed up face Uh from your lover who was mad yes. because you were having a double affair. Yes. And no and don't don't forget that Costanza's husband worked for Bernini. Oh. So not only was she having an affair with him, with his boss and his brother, Bernini was directly responsible for cutting up her face. And also, Bernini's servant, who did the face cutting, was arrested as well. Bernini's punishment, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) I'm sure it was just. Marriage. (laughs) Marriage to one of the youngest and most beautiful bachelorettes in Roman society, high class, noble society, Caterina Tezio. Oh, bummer. So the Pope was like, Bernini, you're out of control. This has gone too far. You've got to get married. You've got to have a lady washing your clothes, making your food, giving you babies. That's going to just rein you in, keep you in control. So that's what happened. At this point, understandably, you're probably like, God, Bernini, what a dick. Like, how did he get away with this? In perhaps some kind of karmic retribution, he was shortly thereafter commissioned to do the bell towers of St. Peter's, where he tried to kill his brother. And due to foundation issues and his kind of lack of skill in some of the technical aspects of architecture, the bell towers cracked (laughs) and they had to be taken down. And Bernini was actually scorned and it took him quite a long time to get back in the good graces of the Pope. So that is kind of a balance, but really it's not. Costanza was eventually bailed out of jail and by all accounts, she did remain married to her husband. But Bernini's brother, Luigi, later was, you know, allowed back into Rome and then was arrested for violent sodomy. What exactly that means, I can't, 
I can't tell you because be, because I don't know, and perhaps I don't want to really know. I don't let know. Um, let your imaginations run wild. <laughs> oh, but man. Bernini was able to clear his family name and get his brother a papal pardon through another sculptural commission that he made. And as for this beautiful, sensual Costanza bust that I've talked about, Bernini obviously wanted nothing to do with it, but fortunately he did not destroy it and it was purchased by the Medici family and it still resides in Florence today. And if you are ever in Florence, please go and see it. Pay Costanza her well-deserved due. She was a very smart lady and she was a sexual lady in a time that did not respect that but rather punished it. So that is the end of that story and I'm sure we'll talk about Bernini at another time more on his art and less on his shitty personality. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know... Let's not downplay how we do not react very differently at all in 21st century Mm. society um, in regards to women and affairs. Mm -hmm. So, um, very true. You know, 17th century and 21st century. You'd think there'd be a big difference, but in no, some ways there's not. Yeah, you're probably still going to get your face slashed, and you'll, <laughs> you can probably find yourself in jail somewhere. <laughs> I don't know, but it just, uh, it's not that different. So um, that was a lovely story by our pal Jenny about our friend Bernini. And I also want to thank Natalie for the wonderful Caravaggio story. So I'm going to be discussing a little bit about our boy, Diego Velasquez. Full name, Diego Rodriguez de Silva y Velasquez. Velasquez, or as the Habsburgs would have pronounced his name, Velasquez. Um... (laughs) We'll talk some more about the Habsburgs and their um, speech impediment that became um, the national accent of the Spaniards. Um, More about that in a bit. Velasquez was not that much of a bad boy in comparison to our friends Bernini and Caravaggio. And as a matter of fact, Velasquez was a little bit of an ass kisser. That is really going to sort of draw the question, how much can a ass kisser be a badass? Can we think of ass kissers and opportunists as people who are essentially bad? I'm going to say yes. I think that's fair. He was the absolute opportunist, but wonderful, brilliant painter, and let's talk a little bit about his life. So Velasquez, born in Seville in 1599 uh, to a Portuguese family, actually. Little is known of his early life, as is typically the case with people of the 17th century and earlier. There isn't a whole lot that we know about his life until he was around the age of 14, and he went to study fine art with the artist Francisco de Herrera, the elder. But Herrera was a asshole. <laughs> he was an asshole. Um, Vel- Velasquez could not handle his temper tantrums. 
and was apparently being um, heavily overworked by the master. He shortly after went to apprentice with the artist um, Francisco Pacheco. And Pacheco, although less accomplished of an artist, was much more tolerant and way better connected in society and would end up being a very important connection for Velasquez in his ultimate ascent into Habsburg court sweetheart. He married Pacheco's daughter and started to paint in the realist manner. Velasquez drew upon Caravaggio in a very obvious way with not only his use of what we now call realism, but also his depictions of the common folk better known as the outcasts of society. And in Velasquez's case, everyday Spanish life. So there's a few famous paintings by the artist. One is the old woman frying eggs, which depicts a scene of an old woman frying eggs. (laughs) And um, it sounds quite simple, but it's a quite beautiful work of art. And it is a scene where we get to see Velasquez and all of his talent. You've never seen better fried eggs. It's beautiful. Make you really hungry. Next time you're frying up an egg, you're going to think, huh, how do I paint that? (laughs) Well, you know what? It's not easy. (laughs) And it gets you the attention of kings. A little bit about that genre. These paintings are called bodegones, and they literally mean tavern pieces, tavern paintings, paintings of taverns, wine cellars, kitchens, etc. They're paintings drawing from everyday life. This is what turns Velasquez on. This is where he really begins to develop himself as a super accomplished painter. So, 1621, Philip IV ascends to the throne and Count Olivares becomes his prime minister. So, Count Olivares was a great patron of the arts. He was known for um, his love of poetry and painting and etc. music. So, Pacheco sends an opportunity for Velasquez and they run to Madrid. They're just like, oh my God, we got to get him in here. It's going to be huge. He's going to be famous. It took two years for Velasquez to impress the king and actually impress Olivares to then arrange a meeting between the king and Velasquez. Um, Velasquez would paint an equestrian portrait of the king And this portrait was a success. And at 24 years old, Velasquez became appointed court painter, and he would work in the Habsburg royal court until the end of his life in 1660. So he's in court. It's going great. And um, he really starts to find himself in a position where he needs to depict the head of the Spanish Empire in the most flattering way possible. So those of you who are not schooled in the history of the Habsburg royal lineage, let's just uh, get it right. Get ready. I'm going to be really impressed if 
one of you is. I know it's it's you know that's a funny thing to say, but lately it just seems like there is this sort of like interest all of a sudden in how decrepitly <laughs> inbred the Habsburgs yeah. were. So, so many royal families. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a fact of royalty. Queen Victoria married her first cousin Albert. <gasps> King Tutankhamen oh, was horribly inbred. <laughs> um, yeah. Inbreeding and imperialism. <laughs> Look into it. It's a the thing. It's a very real thing. <laughs> so, um, just, you know, to, to get it out there, from uh, 1516 to 1700, it's been estimated that over 80% of the marriages within the Spanish branch of the Habsburg dynasty were between family members, close blood family members. And um, these close blood relatives were often uncles and nieces or double first cousins or, um, you know. What's a double first cousin? So double first cousin is just a marriage between two first cousins. Uh, okay. Uh, right. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's kind of nasty. And, um, you know, just spoiler, the Habsburg dynasty um, went to shit in 1700 when um, King Carl Carlos II died without um, having conceived an heir. No one was surprised. Um, King Carlos II could not walk until the age of eight. He didn't speak until the age of four. Who was the one who couldn't chew? That was him. Yeah. The Habsburg jaw. And that's oh. where this is all going is um, <laughs> Philip IV was a product of inbreeding. And Philip IV, just as most of the Habsburg clan, exhibited very distinct features indicating inbreeding. I don't think they knew that at the time, but we know that now. And one of the most distinct features is the Habsburg jaw, which is characterized <laughs> by a very exaggerated underbite. Underbite, yes. So so what's the point of all this, right? <laughs> Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because Velasquez as opposed to his predecessors in the Habsburg court, depicted Philip IV in all of his Habsburg jaw glory. <laughs> and this was a very daring move on the part of Velasquez um, to depict the king in a somewhat non-flattering light. Yeah. Um, if you compare images of Philip IV to, like, Louis Fourteenth at the time, yeah. um, you know, Louis is out there looking he glorious. He handsome devil. You know, especially he's... Especially compared he, <laughs> You know, he had the hair and yes. the face, and he yeah. was just a... I don't know. He was like a rock star. I mean, yeah. I want him to headbang in the front row of whatever show. Um, anyway, <laughs> Philip IV didn't look like that. And Velasquez depicted him realistically. And it speaks volumes to his position in court that these paintings were not altered Philip IV allowed himself to be depicted in a less than grand light. And Velasquez's prowess as a painter 
really allowed him to get away with a lot that would not normally be tolerated in such settings as a Spanish royal court. One of the most famous paintings by the artist is the quintessential work Las Meninas, Mm depicting the um, princess of Philip IV and Mariana of Austria, the daughter, um, short, short lifespan of the young girl. In the painting, we see her in the company of her ladies-in-waiting, and there are several elements of the work that make it one of the most talked about pieces in art history till today. It's still just completely captivating for so many. There are art historians that have made a career out of analyzing this work. Honestly, if like you're not familiar with Las Meninas, you need... If you look up nothing else from this podcast, yeah. look it up. It's, it's a very important painting. Amazing. And if you can see it, I haven't had the chance to see it in person, but I've only heard that it is quite the experience There's, if you ever make it to Prado. It's huge, first of all. And second, it really draws you in. It draws you in not only because of its stature in relation to a human viewer, but also um, because of the painting's curious treatment of the viewer. Velasquez paints a scene where you're essentially, you don't know where you are, and one would guess that you may be in the position of the royal king and queen. However, upon a closer analysis of the work, and just an understanding of how refraction and reflection work. Mm-hmm. The In the back of the painting, there is a small square that some have interpreted as being a mirror that is displaying King Philip IV and Mariana of Austria in, a, in the scene. We think it's a mirror, but knowing what we know about mirrors... And seeing as the image does not reflect the rest of the room, um, we don't think it's a mirror. It could be some, maybe like a painting. Nobody knows, okay? It's just weird. It could still be a mirror because... Maybe it's a mirror. All of the images in the background of the image... It's the only one that's reflective. The rest are shrouded in darkness. So you have this weird... Is it a mirror? Is it a painting? We don't know. Who knows? And what we're getting at is that this whole treatment of the viewer, the, the, the fact that Velasquez inserted himself in this scene of the royal family, he thought very highly of himself. He was breaking a lot of rules and he just didn't care because he was honestly the royal sweetheart of the court. And he knew that that was his position and he played it up for whatever it was worth. Velasquez was crazy popular. He was insanely successful and he would find that he could really do no wrong with the Habsburgs, with Philip IV. They supported him in everything that he did, and he really was a person who was aware of his ability to work his way into the social situation that he wanted to live in. He was aware of his capacity as a 
brilliant painter, and this is reflected in most of his works of art done between the time he was appointed as court painter up until his death in 1660. Altogether, he wasn't much of a bad boy, but he was certainly aware of his talent. And even in a painting like the portrait of Innocent X, which was the Pope, Velazquez used the portrait as a vehicle to display his talent. And compared to past images of popes done by other artists, it's very obvious that Velazquez didn't want to trick anybody. It was a painting. He shows obvious brush strokes and details, and and he's really inserting his talent into the work. And this is a consistent theme with the work of Velazquez. There's never a time where he's trying to fool the viewer as to whether or not this is a painting or real life. He wanted you to know, this is a painting painted by Velazquez, and it's the shit, and you should like it. (laughs) Pretty much. He's not a bad boy, but he's a badass. Yeah. Indeed. He was a badass. And um, on that (laughs) note... We're going to wrap up on our boy Velasquez. <laughs> a little bit of a, a goody two-shoes, <laughs> if you will. Um, Compared to Caravaggio yeah, and Yeah, you know, and um, he, he wasn't... Anyone. Yeah, he wasn't quite as violent, but regardless, we have three stories of artists that were very confident yeah. and in some ways very privileged opportunist opportunist hopefully it we have provided you with some things to chew on some things to think about um we hope you have an image of the baroque yeah the baroque some key players in the baroque what their lives were like what life was like in that time period in that place if you have any thoughts questions, ideas, please email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. As I said before, we really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. It's been so great. Um, As of right now, arthistorybabes.tumblr.com is our primary website. We will have an additional website in the future, but that's uh, in progress. So <laughs> we're, working uh, we're working on it. We are also on Instagram as Art History Babes Podcast. And we are on Twitter um, at Art History Babes. We're on Facebook. Like us. Anything. Share the page. <laughs> Share. You know, just, just get us out there in any way. We appreciate it. Um, just listening is great. Thank you so much for listening. Anybody else have anything to say? Oh, our next episode. Oh, yes. Our next episode is going to be (laughs) Weird Pootie. Weird Pootie. Weird Pootie. Weird Pootie. Pootie. (laughs) And if you don't know what that is, that's even better. Because we'll explain it next time. Thank you for listening to the Bad Boys of Baroque with the Art History Babes. Bad boys, what you want? What you want to do? <laughs> From Cabernet
if you're if you're looking for a sword, talk to Jen. <laughs> yeah. For all but... your guitar needs. <laughs> After... The Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.